Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, with their first album in five years on the way and a North American summer tour coming up, we speak with Train's lead singer, Pat Monahan about the new single, AM Gold, hitting the road with Jewel and Blues Traveler, and about his time in BC filming a Hallmark Christmas movie. We hear from Ukrainian MP Kira Rudik about life in Kyiv right now under curfew, what Ukraine needs to defend itself, and why words of support and praise from Western allies just aren't enough. But first, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed a joint session of the Canadian Parliament for nearly 20 minutes today. Speaking through a translator, he told lawmakers about what life is like in his country. From a fragile peace to a war in a matter of hours and the horrors of the past three weeks since Russia's invasion, asking them to imagine what if it were their cities and towns being attacked, their kids, their homes. We get complete reaction, including from Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. Sometimes you know you know that you're watching history unfold. It felt that way today, watching Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky speak to a joint session of the Senate and Parliament today. The question now is, what does this mean going forward? Will we look back at this day as a turning point when the war in Ukraine changed? Will we look back at this day as another lost opportunity, perhaps to better defend Ukraine against Russia? We shall soon see. MPs of all stripes stood today to listen to just one man. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed a joint session for nearly 20 minutes, speaking through a translator. He told lawmakers here about what life is like there in his country that went from a fragile peace to war in a matter of hours and the horrors of the past three weeks since Russia's invasion, asking them to imagine what it would be like if their cities and towns were being attacked, their kids, their homes. Justin, can you imagine hearing you, your children, hear all these severe explosions, bombing of airport, bombing of Ottawa airport, tens of other cities of your wonderful country. You can see that our cities like Kharkiv, Mariupol, and many other cities are not protected just like your cities are protected, Edmonton, Vancouver. You can see that Kyiv is being shelled and bombed. Can you imagine someone taking down your Canadian flags in Montreal and other Canadian cities? I know that you all support Ukraine. We've been friends with you, Justin, but also I would like you to understand and I would like you to feel this, what we feel every day. Can you imagine when you, when you call your friends, your friendly nation, and you ask, please close the sky, close the airspace, please stop the bombing. How many more cruise missiles have to fall on our cities until you make this happen? So while he thanked Canada for our support, he also asked that we and NATO allies do something, anything, to protect the skies over Ukraine, the pathway by which Russia has rained down death and destruction on his country for nearly three weeks now. We care. He knows that. Do we care enough? That's the question tonight. Will it, in fact, push Canada's allies to do more? Maybe not a no-fly zone, but something for them. Joining me now is Stuart Prest, lecturer in political science from Simon Fraser University. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Oh, good evening. My pleasure. Tell me about the impact of that speech. I mean, I've seen lots of speeches from foreign leaders in Ottawa. That one felt particularly tailored and well-tailored to a Canadian audience. Oh, absolutely. This, uh, 
had a, a great deal of, of ceremony to it. We, it was a joint session of the, the House of Commons of, and the Senate. So there was a, a, a moment of, of special significance prepared for the speech. And, uh, and, and, and Mr. Zelensky rose to the, the occasion uh, simply by speaking about his experience and translating that experience to the Canadian context, essentially just inviting his listeners, uh, Canadian MPs and senators and and the country as a whole to imagine exactly what it would be like to have the experience of Ukraine uh, replicated here in in Canada, to have the idea of Canada's major cities, Edmonton and Vancouver, mentioned by name, to be subjected to to Russian shelling, to be uh, a leader of, of the country subject to, to casualty reports daily, and then trying to invoke that experience for uh, how, how to explain that that to your your children and just to how difficult that is for a leader of a country or for indeed any any parent caught up in, in that kind of dire situation and really bringing home the idea of war is something that is uh, often seen as foreign in this day and age something that happens in, in parts of the world that are not here and really trying to bring that experience uh, home to Canadians and uh, and to use that to essentially call Canada out for the limited amount of support that it and its allies is providing to Ukraine and calling for more. It was certainly persuasive. Uh, I give it that listening to it. Uh, do you think it was persuasive enough to get what he not he wants? Well, it's it's very clear uh, the the explicit call was to close the skies, which uh, in, implies a, a call for a, a no-fly zone. And, and so that is what uh, Mr. Zelensky is, is asking for. But it's a very difficult thing. Well, it's something that Canada can't do on its own. We simply don't have the capacity. And even in, in cooperation with NATO allies, uh, it would not be a, a simple, straightforward thing to do. It would require uh, NATO uh, air forces to be in uh, in actual direct contact and, and conflict with, with Russian air forces. So it is essentially in order to close the skies, it's not just flipping a switch. It, it would require an engagement um, uh, of military on military, which could lead to uh, uh, an escalation of that conflict. And given that there would be uh, nuclear armed uh, belligerents on each side at, at that point, it, uh, the, the, the potential consequences could be uh, unimaginably dire. One of the things that's come up, uh, and again, uh, President Zelensky will address U.S. Congress tomorrow, which feels like perhaps an even more important speech because they can, in fact, uh, you know, implement some form of of protection of Ukraine skies if if needed. Um, but do you, are we reaching a point now where allies are going to find it difficult to watch the continued bombardment of civilians in Ukraine? and not at least find some kind of solution? If it's not a yes to a no-fly zone, it would have to be a yes to something else, I would think. I, yeah, it seems like this is a, a, a position that is untenable, unsustainable. Something's got to give. Uh, that uh, given the the bombardment, not only of Ukraine, but the bombardment of the in- imagery of the conflict around the world, it is constant. It is on all uh, social media, TikTok, on Twitter, and wherever you turn, you can see these images simply being uploaded from, from the front lines. This is a, a conflict in which everyone involved, uh, certainly on the Ukrainian side, has a has a, a cell phone. And so the, it's, it's inescapable. And these kinds of moments uh, uh, brought, brought about by Mr. Zelensky, who has been um, uh, so adept at translating that Ukrainian experience to the rest of the world, just makes it in, impossible to to uh, turn a, a blind eye to allow it to recede into the background, as so many other conflicts have, where effectively we saw 
similar levels of, of violence and indeed even in greater levels of violence in places like Syria, um, um, bombardment of, of Chechnya during the, the conflict there uh, a number of years ago now. Uh, it, there have been other instances where Russia or Russia-supported forces have done similar things, but this time the world doesn't seem to be able to turn away. And so that's going to continue the, the pressure for for, for allies to, to do something. But but that something is going to be difficult to figure out. It essentially, how can you channel, channel enough support and, and not just humanitarian support, not just loans, that's re- not really going to resolve what is clearly a military situation. How can you channel enough military support to keep Ukraine fighting until the, the Russian offensive essentially grinds to a halt? That seems like that could happen at some point. Russia has thrown a huge proportion of its armed forces into this, into this onslaught, and they can't maintain that for, forever. But but how to give Ukraine what it needs to 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 make it through the night? Uh, that's a very difficult question, and it doesn't seem like any ally, any member of NATO, has an answer just yet. I have about forty five seconds left, Stuart. Uh, but it feels like so far deterrence is always a one way street. Uh, Putin deter deters us, but our nuclear powers, for instance, our nuclear capacity doesn't deter him. Uh, do you think that's going to change at any point? I, I think there, there there does seem to be a question that is uh, left hanging in the air. Is that at, at what point is is the world that we're ceding to to, to authoritarian regimes that are, are willing to use force to get their way? What at what point is it more important to try to push back at that world than to avoid the the risk of some kind of uh, uh, conflict escalation? And and it may be that uh, leaders around the world say there is no point that effectively no matter what happens in Ukraine that that risk will never be never be ventured. But but there may uh there may come a, bright, a breaking point uh, before then where where uh, the calls for for additional action become inescapable and i think we're we're going to see just how uh how much uh resolve is, is left in in nato and and also the creativity uh, to find ways to support actors it may be that there are other ways to support ukraine to channel additional aid to the country in ways that are not so explicitly escalatory. And I think, I don't think we're ever going to get away from the idea that uh, uh, Putin has the rest of the world a little bit over a barrel because there is this uh, seeming willingness to escalate where others are not. But that doesn't mean that we are helpless in the face of it. And so I think we're going to have to see a search for uh, additional resources here to channel additional military anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, find things that will allow Ukraine to, to push back this menace. Stuart Prest, thank you so much for your time tonight. Always a pleasure. Thank you. One thing that will be nice to get back to as these mandates are lifted, hopefully, is live music. That's one thing I really missed over the course of the pandemic, um, is live music, going to see bands. So I was really excited to read that the band Train, I'll always remember 2001's Drops of Jupiter. I was on this part of the ski team with Global News that was affiliated with a rock station that played that song every weekend back in 2001, felt like it was everywhere always liked train since. So they're back on tour. Uh, they're heading out on a big summer tour beginning in June. They're going to hit Toronto at some point, Seattle as well. They also have a new album coming out on May the 22nd and a new single that was released just a few weeks ago called AM Gold. The lead single off the band's 11th studio album, the first in five years of all original material. That'll come out on May the 20th. And of course, that tour along with Jewel and Blues Traveler starts in June. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome Pat Monahan, lead singer of Trey. You know, whenever you sit down to interview someone in the music world, you always ask people you know about the band you're about to speak about. And it was amazing that one person told me that listening to your records, listening to your tracks, even you know from over the last 
15, 20 years is what they do when they need to find a happy place. And I hmm. thought, what greater compliment is there than that to a songwriter and an artist? There definitely is not a bigger compliment to me. That's pretty cool. <laughs> then when I read about, you know, the last few years for you, I gather that trying to create tracks that you're happy with, that other people are happy with, is difficult when you're, when you're sort of taken out of your usual routine and found yourself sort of in front of a computer screen instead. Yeah, especially now, writing songs virtually was definitely not um, something that I desired, but I had to figure out how to do it. Um, while other people are suffering with you know, illness and uh, losing their jobs, I at least had the luxury to continue to have a job and, and do the work. But then that's just the first step. Then it's uh, during this time in our lives, what is there relevant to be singing about? You know, what is it that I can do? And, and I think that what the point that you made earlier that someone uh, very kindly said about what we do is I think my job is to bring music to people that will somehow lift them up. And uh, at first, when I started in train, that was kind of frowned upon because it was the grunge era that was, you know, still pretty hot and no one was singing anything that was supposed to be uplifting. It was, uh, you know, more awful than ever. Listen to this jam. And, uh, and when I started writing songs like calling all angels or even meet Virginia and especially drops of Jupiter, it was, I think drops of Jupiter kind of made its way in because it wasn't necessarily happy. It was kind of like uh, uplifting in a way, but also very sad. And I think that's why maybe it broke through. But this record has a lot of that as well, where uh, a tr an old train fan, she's not old, but she's been with us a long time. She said, hey, Pat, I'm really psyched that you're all happy and everything and got a great wife, but we're, all, we're not all living that life. You can think you can get back to that misery. <laughs> and I was like, I got that on deck all the time. So let me work it out. So there's a there's a bunch of heartbreak in there too. AM Gold though is is by its very definition a really happy track. And you'll know we're kind of born in the same era era that AM Gold to me is like memories of like all the variety of music you heard in the 70s, from Captain Tennille to Ambrosia to you know yeah. the spinners. It, it really has a great feel to it. And uh, I, I guess that that was on purpose, right? Something uplifting. Yeah, that was actually the name of the record came because my manager, you know, I, I send him when we completed a song, I would send him the songs. And, you know, there were 30 or 40 songs and the ones that were really special. He was like, this sounds like an AM gold record because he's uh, he's about eight or 10 years older than me. And I was like, I don't even know what an AM gold record is. Then I researched it. And it was just like you said. And I was like, wow, you nailed it. This is like an AM Gold record. And AM Gold was not even a song yet. And I was like, well, now I have to write AM Gold because that just makes sense. There was a piece missing that was more of like the Bee Gees uh, or at least something up-tempo and a little bit more disco-y than like the Spinners and Ambrosia. But there's plenty of that on the record too. I was thinking back during the pandemic, I found that I ended up listening to a lot of sort of softer stuff. I don't know what it was. I just like, I, I certainly didn't pull out my old Pearl Jam records. So it was, it was back to that kind of AM gold thing. I think it was just mm -hmm. one of those needs to have, to have something uplifting um, around. Yeah. Was it, was it tough to write? Was it tough to sit down and write a new record? Yeah, it was tough because I was also writing a musical for Broadway. Right. And so the writing a record for myself, 
actually became easier than the Broadway stuff because that's a, so I finished the first draft uh, after this album was completed, but working simultaneously on both, I ended up finding it to be easier to write an album than a musical because it's at least my, my perspective where uh, you know, a musical is like each character has their own personality and I've got to figure out what that person would be saying or singing uh, during these moments in their struggles or their joys. And that I think helped me write a better record, a better album, because then I was able to tap into my own stuff and be honest. And like, these are, they're like, there's a, there's a song on the album called betting on me where that's been my whole life. I mean, there's no way that there's a 22-year-old kid out there thinking, you know what? I need a new train record. Uh, but it's up to me to think that they do, not them. You know, like, I have to make something worth having because I'm betting on me all the time. I have to. Yeah, I mean, you, you even mentioned that when you talked about John Lennon writing music for his generation. And yeah. as time goes on, I mean, that becomes, I mean, you change, right? As you get older, I mean, I know this, you change. And the way you look at things change. And, and, and yeah. I guess having your music reflect that and still appeal is, is, is the challenge. The challenge really is I can write songs and make records. Uh, I could put four records out a year if I wanted. But I don't know if any of it would be relevant. And the relevancy is the part that's difficult. Uh, how, do I, how do I not try to be a TikTok star, but understand that this is a very competitive realm uh, that we live in musically. And that if I do want to be heard, I have to be thinking as though that has to be an avenue at some point. Uh, I'm not going to be a TikTok star, but somebody has to recognize some of this music on TikTok if it wants to be heard. You know, that's that's difficult because I, I come from, you know, cassettes and then CDs and then iTunes uh, and now streaming and now TikTok. It's like it keeps changing uh, every two years. You know, like somebody I have a 10 year old son. And I mentioned something about YouTube and he's like, I watch YouTube, but I don't think anybody else I know does. Like, that's how fast this is moving. You know, Yeah, I now feel like I now know what my dad was like when he used to stare at the VCR on the clock flashing and thinking, dad, what's yeah. wrong with you? You know, I get that. Now. I get that. <laughs> Coming up, we talk about TikTok and the pressures of the ever evolving music industry and find out what it's like to work with Taylor Swift. More with Pat Monahan, lead singer of Train, after this. Welcome. I'm speaking with Pat Monahan, lead singer of Train. I did speak to to a Canadian recording artist earlier who you know who's who's trying to make a comeback, and she said, "Oh, it's so tough. It's so tough now to try and be your own marketing manager. Like, am I supposed to document my life 24 hours a day? Like, where does the line exist? Are you finding that difficult as well for in modern music to try to sort of have to market yourself, or at least the pressure to market yourself 24 seven? Yeah, I think this is where it all ends up being. I have to make music for my generation. Uh, I think my generation is on TikTok a little bit, but not really. I mean, they're they're still on MySpace or what you know, maybe not MySpace, but uh, Facebook. And that's just the era that I live in. And I have to make music for those people and hope that maybe it will become broader. Um, so my, I have a thirteen-year-old daughter. And TikTok is like a, the world to her. And she was like, dad, check this out. It's blowing up. 
And she sent me a TikTok clip of 50 Ways to Say Goodbye, which is a train song that's now becoming a huge thing on TikTok because it's a it's basically like when your boyfriend and your best friend get along really well and then they show clips of, and then with 50 Ways to Say Goodbye in the back, like uh, uh, so you never know, like uh, this song AM Gold could be something special right now. Uh, or it could be a TikTok thing in you know six years. I don't know how it works, but I have to just I have to just do the work and and hope for the best. At some point, you can't worry about it as much as uh, your friend. I remember reading some story years ago years ago about Chris and Tina Weymouth of the Talking Heads, and one of their kids finally liked the Tom Tom Club because Mariah Carey sampled it. Right, it was one of those yeah, things right. about, <laughs> about having kids, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Your music, your music. Uh, it must be the one thing that I, I I do imagine will be exciting is to go back out on tour. And you're launching a big tour in June. I know Toronto is one of your stops here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, how much are you looking forward to actually being out in front of those same those same people again? Uh, well, we we were able to get 25 shows in last summer, uh, and oh, okay. every every day um, I was like, we just got to make it through today. Because everywhere in the whole world, a tour was shutting down, uh, a group was getting COVID, whatever. Every day was another batch of bad news. And we got through it. And it was amazing and beautiful. And people needed it. And you realize how healing and miraculous music can be in people's lives. And so I'm assuming that this will just be a bigger extension of that. So I think going out on tour this summer might be... Uh, maybe the most exciting best year of my life musically on on the road Uh, and plus we'll be joined by jewel and blues traveler who i've known for many years so this throwback era album uh, along with you know a throwback group of friends might be uh, just what i need is it tough to set up a tour when you when you still have i mean i think things are opening up a lot at least here in canada a lot of the mandates are dropping i know in the states it's been faster is it tougher to tougher to sort of try to plan ahead uh yeah i think it's not as tough for us to plan ahead but i think it's tough for ticket buyers to plan ahead i think for you know my manager mentioned before we even put the tour up he's like hey i just want you to be prepared because ticket buyers have been punished for two years you buy tickets, it's canceled, never comes back, like whatever the thing is. So I think people are waiting. Um, they're a little bit reluctant of like how, you know, is this really going to happen kind of thing? Uh, and so, you know, it's going fine and 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 tickets are, are, are selling well, but uh, you can sense a bit in every genre of music that people are reluctant. Like, I'm going to wait and see if this is really going to happen because for two years it hasn't. What kind of music did you listen to through the pandemic that got you through some of those days where it was uh, feeling a little, feeling tough? Well, one of the only places I was allowed to go to was a golf course. Right. And so I would golf with a couple friends and one of them, uh, we aren't allowed, but we would listen to music out on the course. And this guy was playing some music that sounded like, uh, you know, a Motown era. And I was like, wow, who is this? And he's like, oh, it's these... Uh, 25 year old kids from seattle and i was like what like uh, it was a band called the dip and so i started listening a little bit more to that and then i started listening to older music that they were referencing and i think that's why am gold happened because uh it was like i always listen to new music while making a record 
And this time I listened to a more throwback music from the AM gold era. It's again, it's interesting what people listen to over the time. Um, I did have to ask you a bit about working with Taylor Swift because one of my other colleagues said, ask him about working with Taylor Swift. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, clearly that, you know, that was, that was a big hit over the past few years. How is that? Because speaking of younger generations, Taylor is, uh, you know, she's lovely and she's driven like no one I've ever been around. And um, she's a boss lady. You know, when you're in the room with her, you're, you definitely, it's interesting because I was very timid in the room because, you know, uh, I just needed to vibe it out. I'm, I'm just that way. And uh, after about an hour, she was like, you know, you're here because, uh, I love what you do. So I want you to do what you do. And I was like, okay, cool. I just needed to hear that instead of helping her do her thing. She wanted me to be a bigger participant. So, you know, she's smart. She's uh, clever and she knows how to do this. She's certainly a big fan of yours. I was watching some of those live, uh, those live shows, uh, Newark, I think it's specific. And yeah, it must be great to walk out again in front of a, a different crowd of people who, who may know your music, but may not be familiar with your music and introduce them to it again. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was cool. We, we did drive by together in New York a couple of years ago and that was a lot of fun, but yeah, it was a different kind of crowd. You know, it's, uh, I've been to one direction concerts and that's, uh, that's too hard on my ears. <laughs> Not the music, but the screaming. I was going to say, what, what was that like? Well, you can add actor to Pat Monahan's skills and Vancouver and Whistler to where he was filming on location. We're going to ask him about his time in BC next. But last year, I spotted Pat Monahan in something else. It was the release of a Hallmark movie called Christmas in Tahoe. Train had been in the holiday spirit since 2015 when they'd put out their Christmas in Tahoe album. That record was the inspiration for that Hallmark movie starring Pat Monaghan and filmed in BC. I did want to ask, I mean, I, I, I watched Christmas in Tahoe um, quite by accident. You know, it sounded interesting. I saw it. I'm like, oh, we'll watch this together. So I was telling my wife last night, I'm like, hey, you know, you know who I'm interviewing? I'm interviewing Pat you know, from, from Christmas in Tahoe. She's like, oh, Jackson. that's great. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, what was that? You spent a lot of time in Canada, by the way. How was that? It was great. We were in... Uh... Vancouver and Whistler is beautiful. I've never been to Whistler before, but man, what a magical place. If, uh, if you're Canadian or any uh, from any country, go to Whistler at some point. It's miraculous. We had a lot of fun. It's, you know, it, acting is hard. Uh, it's not a natural thing for some people like myself. Uh, so I have to work really hard at it. You know, and the fact that they give you like a trailer, it's more, it's not as like, hey, you're in a trailer because it's so glamorous and you're in there having cocktails. It's you're in there cramming for a test, basically, uh, making sure that you're not wasting people's time when the camera's on. And so that's hard. And one of the guys that was in the movie with me, uh, the, the main actress's dad, he's a Canadian actor who has been in about 170 films and and he was so lovely and very helpful. He was really help, helping me a lot. And he, at one point, at one point I said, what's next for you? And he's like, nothing <laughs> until it comes up. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it works in the acting world. It's like, uh, you never know. I'm sure he's busy right now, but he didn't know, you know, six months ago what he was going to do. <laughs> uh, and 
acting though, I mean, I, I guess it's a lot of hurry up and wait. So the creative process oh, yeah. is complete, completely different for you. Yeah, it's a totally different thing. It's a lot of hurry up and wait too in music where it's like write a record, write a record. And then, you know, it, it takes 40 songs probably to narrow it to six. And then the six sometimes aren't the magic. It's just the vibe. You know, those are the songs that are dictating the sound of the album. And then you build the rest of the album and then you mix it and then you master it and then you wait so that people can get prepared to put a single out. It's, a, I mean, you know, this is a long process as well, but the hurry up and wait in acting is definitely uh, a big part of it. So, so what did, uh, what did, so I'm, I'm good friends with George Lopez and he's really good friends with Sam Jackson. And, uh, and Sam said, you don't get paid for acting. You get paid for waiting. <laughs> and that's what it was. Is it something you'd want to pursue more of? Is it something you look at like that one, that experience you had? Is it something you'd like to do more of? Or, was you know, it, uh, uh, because George, uh, who was also in the movie with me, because yeah. I was like, hey, hey, George, how do you feel about inconveniently flying to Whistler, spending, you know, two days with me and not making any money? And he was like, oh, I've been waiting for this call my whole career. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. So we're thinking that maybe uh, every year, George and I do something Hallmark-wise, like maybe he continues to be, I continue to be Jackson from Christmas in Tahoe, and I go out on tour, and George will be my uh, my security guy since he was the security at the hotel. Tom Butler, right? That's, I was trying to remember the name of the uh, the Canadian actor who was, who was yes, in the who was that's in the exactly Tom right. Butler. Tom yep. Butler, that's right. Yeah, uh, that Tom's was, yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, so, so now what next then? So you're going to go out on tour. I mean, that's going to be a, obviously a, going to take up a lot of your summer. You have a busy year. Is it going to be hard to sort of be away from the family and go back and, and live that life? You know, after two years of being home a lot, I think, uh, it's going to be great and they'll come out with me. It, you know, not the kind of guy that was a burden to my family being at home. So it's like, I'm giving them a break by leaving. Uh, but you know, we'll miss each other and they'll come out on tour with me periodically and we'll have a great time. And, uh, but they're busy, you know, like everybody's busy. They're, they're trying to keep going in their thing too. AM gold. So the album comes out in a while. The single is out now and, uh, yeah, all the best and all, all, all success. Uh, Thanks. Well, hopefully I'll see you in person yeah. when we're in Toronto. It'd be fun. Yeah, absolutely. If you're back in Vancouver, I'm even closer. So we'll, uh, we can, oh, we can, great. We'll come up to Whistler. Okay, cool. Well, when we shoot the next Christmas movie, I'll come find you. Awesome. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. We've been talking so far on the show about Vladimir Zelensky's address to Canadian parliamentarians today, the Ukrainian president, making some making some pleas, certainly making some drawing, some attention to what's happening in this country in a way that hit home for a lot of Canadians, using the examples of what would it be like if Canadian cities were being attacked, if the CN Tower were being hit by Russian bombs, if Canadian flags were being taken down. It was quite the impact. I was curious to know, because certainly he was asking, again, to protect Ukraine's skies. I was curious to know what MPs in Ukraine would think about his words to Canadians, considering how tailored they were for a Canadian audience. So we reached out to one. It turns out they were sitting today. They met today in the Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, in the middle of a war zone. They came from around the country. 
to gather, uh, mainly to vote on extending martial law, but also as a show of unity. Here's them singing the national anthem today. Now, um, in that crowd was Kira Rudik. She's a member of parliament. She's in Kyiv. They've imposed a 36-hour curfew in the capital now, necessary to keep people out of harm's way. So as the world watches this war enter a third week, what do Ukrainian lawmakers need and want? What do they want to tell us? Here's Kira Rudik, member of parliament. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I guess the first question, we know that things are changing quickly in Kyiv. You're under curfew now. What is the what is the environment like in this city right now? Well, citizens are ready for a curfew. We do understand that the risks of Russian attacks increased, and especially with the recent shellings that destroyed one of the parts of the subway station and three residential buildings. So we know the things uh, are intensifying, and that's why uh, it will be important for the next two days to stay at home. Uh, while we are talking right now, there are explosions behind my back, like pop, pop. and uh, uh, we do hope that this is uh, our air force protection system working, and that the rockets are not hitting the ground. But uh, there are many rockets, and I think that last night was the most intensive shelling of Kiev that we had uh, ever experienced. I can't imagine, and I remember the sounds of shelling from Mariupol back in 2014. I can't imagine you ever get used to that sound. Yeah, you don't. You you become like more normal with that. You start being super experienced. You like you know when it's far away, it's closer. You know like uh, when there is a siren uh, at 5 a.m., it's like a real deal. If there is a siren at 3 p.m. during the day, it's just like eh. We'll, I will continue writing my article and then we'll go downstairs, you know, but you, the, the truth is you never get used to that. Here, it's been more than t- almost three weeks now since this invasion began. Um, when you look back at these three weeks, what is your sentiment about, about just how able Ukraine has been to defend itself? So my phrase here is just watch us or hold my beer or something. You know, we uh, we are in the position where nobody, like nobody in the world, expected that we will be fighting so hard. Russians did not expect that. Our Western allies don't, did not expect it. And I don't know if we expected that. But at some point, like everybody just decided to fight, and here we are. It's day twenty, uh, and um, Russian army didn't have any like significant victory that they could be proud of, or they can show and say. This is our victory, and um, we we are still standing. Today, uh, there was a parliamentary meeting, parliamentary sitting in Berkhov. It was actually the third one after the beginning of war. So the first one was on the day one, day like six or seven, and this, this is the one. And there were many reasons not to do it, and significant one, reason to do it, to show that we are still here, we are standing. There's no way to break us. And this is why MPs from the whole country under this were getting into Kiev. 
gathering together. It was another special operation uh, to everybody somewhere. And then like, so on a, like a, on a call, they would be able to gather together. And it was actually very emotional because, you know, it was not under no taping. So uh, the head of the uh, parliament to throw in some words. So the, at the end, after we were done, he said, and now get the hell out of here and fast. So, so you, um, you, post, you posted some images of you singing the national anthem. There looked to be a lot of unity and it was really about being seen to be there so your country can see you together. Yeah, the doctors are curing, the teachers are teaching, the soldiers are fighting and our uh, goal, responsibility and duties as MPs, aside of being with our constituencies, aside of showing the example, is just like to at a certain time, come in and vote for the necessary legislation pieces for our country. So we have done that today. I'm super proud of our parliament. Uh, everybody, even you know, with the people who you did not expect it from, it's uh, it's it's very important that everybody was standing here today as as one. One of the internationally, of course, President Zelensky has been standing since day one of this invasion. He spoke to the Canadian Parliament today. What did you make of his of his words and how important was it that a Ukrainian president tell a Canadian people, imagine if it was your cities under attack? You know, there are many Ukrainians living in Canada and I'm getting so much support uh, from from Canadian people. And I'm sure they know why they fled from from Ukraine and Russia and like a while ago, why did they become become an immigrant? And they know what it is or their parents do know what it is when the, the cities are under attack. And a president is doing the right thing right now. This is the thing that we are all doing is persuading the world to give us the no-fly zone, to help us. I know that nobody likes the words no-fly zone anymore. We made it like the ones that everybody is just, oh my goodness. But uh, on the other hand, this is what we need. And today we were looking back at history again, and thinking that in 100 years, the world did not really learn a lot. Let's make it clear. Everybody's still thinking that uh, the dictator can be hush-hush uh, mm -hmm. and he will say, okay, I will be a good boy now. And uh, the, the most heartening thing is that their lies are acting really the same way as they were acting uh, 100 years ago, hoping that the world will resolve itself up until it's like too late. We should have learned that the dictator should be taken down while he is at the beginning of the of the taking the Europe. And this is where we are right now. And three years from now, there will be questions who was doing what. And th these questions will need to be answered. Because I can understand even after 20 days, it, even sitting far away, watching images of Mariupol, images of Kharkiv, images of Kyiv, um, you can feel the frustration and the anger. The beginning was was about fighting back and being resilient. And now you can feel the frustration and the anger coming out a bit because time, you know, this is the time you would think to act. Yeah. Well, so as a politician, I do understand that some decisions take time. I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I do understand that. But as a Ukrainian MP, as a Ukrainian citizen, as a Ukrainian woman, I'm saying that every single minute of procrastination, of hoping that it will go away, my people are buying with their lives and with their blood. 
every single minute when somebody is saying, I will send this email and maybe maybe they will provide jets. We don't want to provide it. It's very hard. It's politically not convenient, etc., etc. My people are dying. And this is why I will be knocking on all the doors. This is why we'll be talking to all the parliaments in the world. We'll be telling that this is what we need. We do need jets. So, you know, we have been very good in fighting uh, on the ground, really. Like, look again, we are fighting one of the largest armies in the world and we are fighting them so they didn't take any large city. Just like, like imagine of how, uh, uh, how impossible that is. And we are saying, look, guys, we are able to fight him back, to push him back to hell where he belongs. We need the support from the air. We need the planes. We need the jets. If you don't want to get involved, okay. Though, again, as a politician, I know there are ways of getting involved without getting involved. I do not really understand while Putin and, by the way, his allies that are gathering together is playing, not playing by the rules. Why do democratic countries say, no, we will be nice. There are rules. We need to obey them. Putin would, and this is like, this is this heartening um, difference between tyranny that he is able to move very fast. He's able to be very effective, very efficient, and like make the decisions like bam, 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 and execute on his plan. We know, we know that the price of democracy is uh, this, that it takes time. Everybody needs to be in agreement. There needs to be a consensus. You need to go by the paperwork, etc. But right now, I don't even see it happening. I see a lot of like like when Putin attacks Mariupol or destroys it to the ground or destroys my cities, the United Nations is sending him angry email and the rest of the world is condemning him. The condemning thing is happening. This is like this is just this is just outrageous. And, you know, my question right now is so we as a country, I'm as, as, a, as a citizen, we do have a plan. So our plan is. We will be standing and we will be fighting. We are super thankful for all the support and weapon and everything else. And we will be standing and fighting him. We don't have any other plan. This is ours. My plan, my question is, what is NATO's plan? They're saying, oh, the sanctions uh, may work. So my answer to you to that, yes, is in Ukrainian parliament, there are still politicians whom I can blame for eight years of hoping that Putin will die. You cannot build your strategy on hoping that somebody will die. You cannot, and you cannot build your strategy on hoping that Russians will uh, will wake up and, uh, and there will be a revolution. It's a good, like having it in your back pocket. It's good to have it, like hoping, okay, they will collapse and then Russians will unite or separate like Soviet Union. It's like, a, I accept it, but it cannot be plan A because you don't know where it when it will be executed. So because you see it, the sanctions take time, the sanctions will take time and we don't know how much time it takes. And again, every single minute, every single minute, people are dying in Ukraine. And every time I hear about sanctions, you know, the, what, this is the question that I'm asking. Will I personally survive till they will work? I'm speaking with Ukrainian Member of Parliament Kira Rudik from Kiev tonight. After this, we'll talk a bit about uh, President Zelensky's message to U.S. Congress tomorrow and just how important that one will be. We'll be right back. I'm back with Ukrainian Member of Parliament Kira Rudik. We've been talking about the current situation in Kyiv, the desperate need for air security in that country as Russia continues to bombard civilian areas and specifically in the city of Mariupol, but also in other areas. 
the humanitarian crisis that's <clears throat> continuing to emerge. Tomorrow, uh, Kira, President Zelensky will address U.S. Congress. That feels like a very important moment in his continued fight to try to get more security for the country. Um, what, do, what would you like U.S. Congress to know? Uh, and what do you think he should be telling them tomorrow? If he can use his all like 20 minutes or 30 minutes, just go there and repeat one phrase. Give us no-fly zone. Give us no-fly zone. We will need no-fly zone. Otherwise, my people will continue dying because we do need no-fly zone. The, this is the only thing that we critically need right now. We are extremely grateful. Like I want to let everybody know that we are so extremely grateful for all the aid and support we are getting. We know that we wouldn't be able to stand, stand as we are standing right now without, without it. That's for sure. And we are grateful for the countries that are taking our refugees. And this is just emotionally feel of the shoulder of, of the people who are saying, look, we will take them. We will take them. We will give them the support, the education, whatever you will need, because this is how the partners do. This is how the partners act. And we are, but we are saying, uh, we have experience with Putin. Please use our experience. And we are telling you, we are telling you that he will not stop. And we are saying that right now is a fantastic opportunity to fight him back. And that right now is a fantastic opportunity. And we need, we do need the support. We do need those jets. You know, like at the day one, uh, I bore arms and I assembled a resistance team here in Kiev, in my home. Uh, and we are, by the way, right now official and with uh, the overall resistance uh, team in Ukraine. And uh, we, have, we are training. We are training to fight. We are training to protect the home. We are training to patrol, etc., etc. So we are ready to, for Russians to get into the city. We are also kind of ready if Russians will siege the city that they plan to do. So we have food supplies, iPhone batteries. Uh, I know that it, it will be very complicated. Nobody wants to die of, of starvation, right? But we are kind of ready to that as well. What we are not ready and we cannot be ready is to do anything with the missile that is coming onto your home. There is nothing you can do as a person. There is nothing you can do as a city. You know, like we, we can all like get on the streets and there will be still nothing that we can do. The only thing that we can is to beg other countries who do have those jets, who do have those planes and who can protect us, protect us right now from the air. Because you see what Putin is doing. He's bombarding our cities to the ground. He is just like, she, he's basically using the bombs to bombard civilians and that's it. And this is his type of war. And this is something that, this is where I feel so helpless uh, that I can only ask for it because we cannot build it ourselves. Even with all the money in the world, we will not be able to build the air protection system right now ourselves. I, I can understand. I mean, I can't imagine what, it'd be, what it would be like as a member, of, as a lawmaker to vow to protect your, your people and not be able to provide them the protection that they need? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, so the only thing that we can do right now is to show, to lead by example and show them that, uh, show my people that uh, we, we will not back up. Uh, 
Kira Riddick, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Stay safe. Thank you so much for having me and glory to Ukraine.